The following podcast contains descriptions of rape, sexual abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. I've always found the Forrest and Jenna Covey case uh, especially sad to think about because I think about how terrible it would be to be kidnapped with someone you love and to watch them suffer and die. Carl and Sherman, these are two angry individuals, both just dripping with inadequacy, trying to outdo each other. And of course, they both blame one another for it. So uh, we don't really have a clear picture of the dynamic from either man because both men say, he was the real monster, I was just the getaway driver. I was a young, idealistic cop who became a detective. I was really hopeful he could get the death sentence and I could be there on the day when they flipped the switch. And I looked around and there comes Sherman through the door and I just looked around and I pulled out my gun and uh, she looked and started laughing. I told her, this ain't no toy girl. And she looked a hell of a lot younger than she was. I think she was about 25 years old. She said, I know it's not a toy. She said, you know, she said, when you drove up, she said, I thought in my mind you were going to rob me. And I said, is that right? So I said, let's not sit around here all night talking about it then. So she put all the money in a sack, you know, and Sherman tells her, get your coat. She looked around at him and she said, okay. She walked out the door and in the car we got. Well, I don't know what Sherman was thinking, but this is one of the few times I've ever seen him laugh. This ain't no time to be laughing. But he was laughing going to the car. He said, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. And uh, she just opened the door and jumped in, you know, and we rattled off 90 miles an hour, you know. The 1970s, the era of some of the most heinous serial killers of all time. Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the McCrary family. Violent, nasty, and they didn't care about anything other than gratifying their own base desires. Though little known today, they were one of the most murderous families in history, led by a psychopathic patriarch and his depraved son-in-law. Sherman was a small-time screw-up. Carl was a small-time screw-up. When these guys got together, there was a chemistry between them. And then at some point, they walked into that Winchell's Donut Shop in Salt Lake City and saw Sherry Martin. And just robbing the donut shop became, let's take the girl. They roamed the country robbing, raping, and killing up to 22 people in 1971 and 72. Most of them, very young women. You're about to hear their story, raw and ruthless. And we'll hear, for the first time, exclusive prison recordings of one of the killers. After we killed the girls, we never talked about it. We said nothing and rode along in the car and just tried to ignore it. As he tells all. I've been on this ride alone. Sun goes down, I howl and moan. And I know the cries of fellow. Aching souls, I need something to come. I sent a track that leads me on, and I show my teeth 
Cause time has made me cold. From Wondery and Trooper Entertainment, this is Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. My eyes are closed. My eyes are closed. September 28th through October 20th, 1971, Mesquite, Texas. Around the time of the double murder of married couple Forrest and Jenna Covey, two more bodies were found in Mesquite, an otherwise tranquil suburb 15 miles east of Dallas. The rodeo capital of Texas, Mesquite offered an optimal hunting ground for the McCrary Taylors. Its position at the crossroads of four major highways, Interstate 30, 635, 20, and U.S. Route 80, gave Carl and Sherman options of where to speed off with their victims. One of these young women was Elizabeth Perryman, a 26-year-old waitress at the Toddle House coffee shop. Here's Kevin from the Murder Sheet podcast. Elizabeth Perryman uh, worked at a restaurant called the Toddle House, which was near Texas Tech. Uh, She worked there as a waitress. And on the night of September 28, 1971, she called the cab company where her husband worked as a driver. She called around 9.15 or 9.30 and asked for someone to come and pick her up and give her a ride home. And uh, her husband took the call. He drove by and he picked her up uh, a bit before 10 p.m. But when he went in there, she was gone. There were no signs of a struggle. There was $86 missing from uh, the cash register. Uh, A couple of months later, her body was found near Amarillo, Texas. She had been shot in the head. And oddly enough, uh, her body, the man who discovered her body was a man named L.A. Bernard. He was a farmer in the area. And back in August, just a few months earlier, he had discovered the body of another dead woman. Liz Perryman's skeletal remains were found in December of 1972, scattered over a wide area eight miles east of Amarillo. She'd been shot with the same 32 pistol as Leora Looney and Sherry Martin. As with Leora, her waitressing uniform was nowhere to be found. In a grim detail, police conjectured that Liz and Ginger McCrary wore the victim's clothing at the waitressing jobs they picked up along the way. Here's Carl's take on the murder as drawn from his prison confession in 1974. The 48-year-old audio recording was so degraded that we used an actor to bring Carl's testimony to life. Elizabeth Perryman. Yeah, it was September 71. She was working at a restaurant called The Toddle House downtown in Lubbock. 26 years old, very friendly. I left Sherman in the car and I told him, well, I'll go in and I'll take care of this. And I figure, well, I know what I'm doing. I'll rob the joint by myself. And well, he pulls one of his back door tricks, you know, because I come in the front, he comes in the back and I told him to stay in the car. There wasn't nobody in there but her. Hell, I don't need no help. But Sherman comes in anyway, and we're taking the girl. Right away, uh, I got the impression from her. The minute she seen that gun, it didn't shake her up any at all. She kind of grinned about the whole damn thing. She was just too cool, calm, and collected through the whole damn thing. And uh, so she said, well, I suppose you're going to take me with you, just like that. And Sherman looked at me, you know, and he said, Well, you got the idea. She said, 
all right. So I didn't know, well, hell, maybe this one ain't, you know, no problem. All the way from Lubbock to Amarillo, 140 miles, I think, or something like that. I'm talking to her all the way up there, you see. And like I say, this will be damn hard to fool this one. And uh, I'm about halfway convinced on this broad, but I haven't never told her that I'm married and all this. We got outside of Amarillo and this, uh, as it turns out later, this one was the particular spot at the time, I think, where two other bodies had been found on this same ranch within about a half a mile of one another. And I thought it was kind of weird because I didn't particularly pick that place for that reason, you know? Like, I didn't know it. I didn't know it at the time. It was just some place to get off of the highway. And I wasn't even thinking about hurting her. Yeah, this is what she was telling me, you know? We were talking, going up there, and she said, you know, she'd give me the best opportunity I ever had. I could just have her. And, uh, of course, you know, she don't know that me and Sherman or either one was married. And I was inclined to believe her. Like I say, I could pretty well tell, you know, one of them was trying to shuck me or something. I was inclined to believe that. That she was actually serious. And she was telling me, I can go along with this. I can just stay with you guys, you know? I think I shot her twice. I remember I shot her the first time, and I think I shot her once more. But I thought about it for a minute, and I told Sherman, uh, going to the house, I told him that was uncalled for. It was needless. There was just something about that that really dug into me. And then there was Susan Darlene Shaw, abducted from the sweet cream donut shop in Mesquite when she was only 16, Anya and Kevin. On October 20th, 1971, uh, the mother of 16-year-old Susan Darlene Shaw uh, drove up to pick her up from the sweet cream donut shop where she worked. Time was about 10.15 p.m. Unfortunately, Susan's mother could not find her. She was not there. The door to the donut shop was left open. Inside, there was coffee on the burner. A record player was still cranking out some tunes. And but all, there was no sign of life inside. The place had seemingly been robbed, but unfortunately at first, Mesquite, Texas police went with the theory that she had run away from home, that the 16-year-old had suddenly left her job and I guess hitchhiked away with the money. And what ended up happening was uh, she was found in Lake Ray Hubbard. She was floating face down. She'd been shot six times with a 22 and a 32. And unfortunately, Susan had also been raped. Interestingly enough, her body was actually found the same day as the Coveys were. So it was a high body count day for the McCrary Taylors. The circumstances surrounding Susan Shaw's murder were quite bizarre. First, there was a theory that Sherman's son, Danny, was in cahoots with Susan, who, like Danny, was a drug addict, and they may have concocted a plan to rob the store and split the proceeds. But Danny betrayed her and killed her. But that theory doesn't fully hold water. 
because a witness reported that he had seen two people dumping what looked like a body into Lake Ray Hubbard. One of the suspects had red hair, and Danny had red hair, like his sister Ginger. But there's an additional wrinkle. Around this time, Carl was frequently dyeing his hair red as a disguise. Finally, in the days before the killing, Danny had a bad acid trip and ran out of the house. Carl and Sherman found him running down a highway median, ranting and raving. In a drunken fury, Sherman apparently beat the crap out of Danny for drawing unneeded attention to the family. The McCrary Taylors were getting sloppier by the day. Here's more from the Carl confession tapes. Suzanne Shaw. This is one that, uh, what the real reason behind her getting killed was, I had no idea. She was 16. Uh, I won't get into the whole story on that, but I will say uh, she wasn't killed by either Sherman or myself. Danny, that's right. What the actual motive of that was, I've got several opinions. Uh, I know how Danny works. She was an acquaintance of his. Yeah, she was involved in some of uh, activities with some of his narcotics friends. That would have been my best opinion. She worked at the donut shop owned by her stepfather. The place was robbed, as I understand it. Supposed to be robbed, but as I happen to know, it wasn't that way. Uh, she was wound up in it. This was uh, her own doing. She was the one that took the money. She planned this with Danny and went voluntarily. Uh, she had no idea what would happen to her, but Danny double-crossed her. Sherman kept Danny out of it. I kept him out of it. But we both know he did it. As we've researched this case, the McCrary family's escapades and the trail of dead bodies they left in their wake, an interesting and persistent question has emerged among our experts. Were the McCrary Taylor serial killers in a technical, criminological sense? And if not, what type of killers were they? Yes, they killed a large number of people, mostly young women, in a short span of time. But do their crimes exhibit the same characteristics and patterns of sex murderers like Ted Bundy, who performed sex acts on decomposing corpses and kept severed heads in his apartment? Or Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a necrophiliac and a cannibal? Dr. Lewis Schlesinger, a forensic psychologist at the John Jay School of Criminal Justice in New York, has been studying repetitive ritual sex murderers for decades. And he says the McCrary clan were absolutely not serial killers. What are we dealing with here? A family going around and killing people. Um, this family has been described as serial killers. Um, this is not serial killing in the generally accepted way that we've come to understand serial killing or serial sexual murders. When you say serial killer, most of the time you're referring to serial sexual murders like um, the Boston Strangler, uh, Jack the Ripper, Ted Bundy, um, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, and these sorts of individuals that are killing on their own in serial fashion. Um, this is not that. And, and the serial uh, sexual murders that I just mentioned, these are sexually motivated um, this type of killing is really very different. And let me just step back for a second and, and go over uh, murder. All murder is not alike. Some murder is a result of uh, mental illness. God tells you to kill, so you kill. That's very, very rare, but it does occur. 
some murders, in fact, most murders are situational murders. Um, means there's a, there's a situation that occurs that results in a murder. And the prototype of the most typical type of murder is the biblical Cain-Abel murder case, where Cain and Abel got into a dispute and Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. And then there's the sexually motivated murder. And again, as you understand something more, you understand more the complexity of the issue. So for example, there's several types of sexual murder. There's the compulsive repetitive sexual murder, like the serial sexual murderers that I just spoke about, where the killing itself is part of their sexual arousal pattern. In these individuals, there's a fusion of sex and aggression so that the aggressive act itself is eroticized. Don't forget, all of these murders occurred basically within a seven-month period from August 71, let's say, to March 72. Um, it was, they were on a killing spree, and the sexual component was incidental. I, I think the primary motive was money, uh, and they were there. These were young, attractive women. Uh, McCrary and the son-in-law were basically two losers, totally inadequate and angry, and so they break the, the victims and then killed them. I think it was just incidental. It wasn't their primary uh, motivation. The uh, best way also to understand this is not just saying it's a spree killing, but it's a result of social and environmental factors. Um, their family network, which is really the social uh, network that they were traveling in, sanctioned the killings. They, they saw where the money was coming from. They knew what was going on. They may not have known about the sexual assaults and rapes or, and all of its detail, but they knew these people were, were killed in a violent way, and it was a violent robbery. Um, but they, it was okay. Now, when you have a case like this, keep in mind also, this is a complicated case. And so to give a one or two word answer, it's a serial killing. You know, it doesn't explain the depth and complexity of uh, this type of situation. When a normal person hears this, it's very, very difficult for a normal person to wrap your arms around this type of family because it's, it's not part of your life experience. When you look at the McCrary case, there's been a lot uh, printed about this case, referring to this as serial killers or a serial killing family. Now, that would not be my opinion. This type of family and all of the dynamics that go along with it is, is more complicated and just can't be captured by calling them serial killers. So Dr. Schlesinger puts the McCrary's in the category of spree killers, which the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics defines as people who kill at two or more locations with almost no time break between murders. Some people put Andrew Cannanan in this category. He murdered five people in a three-month period in 1997 or Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carl Ann Fugate, whose spree took 11 lives in two months and inspired the Oliver Stone movie, Natural Born Killers. Key distinction seems to be that a spree killer has no real cooling off period between their murders. That fits the McCrary's to a degree. On the other hand, spree killers tend to use a variety of means and murder different types of victims, young, old, male, female, which differs from Carl and Sherman. They used the same guns and preyed almost entirely on young female store clerks. Here's Anya and Kevin again, who placed the McCrary's firmly in serial killer territory. 
I was astonished because it's so different from what you usually think of when you think of serial killers. You have the image in the media of people like Ted Bundy and people like that being somewhat sophisticated and intelligent. And in this case, you have a family working together in a kind of country bumpkins. And I was also frankly amazed I'd never even heard of the case before. For me, it's like they they murdered a lot of people in a relatively short amount of time and sort of seemed to have a bit of a profile in terms of what they were looking for. Um, often these were young women working alone at either a donut shop or a grocery store late at night. Those were the kind of typical victims. I definitely think they probably lacked some of the like complex psychosexual uh, elements that you might see in a more organized serial killer. But I mean, just because they're not super sophisticated or super articulate about their motivations, I mean, I would say, I don't know. I mean, they, they, they raped a lot of their victims, um, brutalized them in some pretty bizarre, specific ways. Uh, it, it seems like I would say, I would call them serial killers. I mean, I, w I would think their victims would probably be like, oh, I've, I've encountered these serial killers at this point, you know? The, the question at the heart of this absolutely is why did this family behave this way and, and hurt so many people? And I think it sort of goes back to the way the family was structured. I think you could almost picture it like a mobile and everybody is sort of swinging around and hovering around the center, which is the male figure in the household. In this case, it's kind of almost shared by Carl Taylor and Sherman McCrary. And whatever the leader's needs are, everyone else has to sort of fall into line and make that happen for them. And for whatever reason, Sherman McCrary and Carl Taylor, I believe, were men who enjoyed terrorizing other people, especially young women. I, I don't think you can kill this many people in, in a similar way and not say that, you know, you don't enjoy it on some level. For these two men, the answer was typically violence and uh, doing horrible stuff. And I think everybody else in the family kind of just went along with that because that's what they thought they should do as a family. You know, everyone knows Ted Bundy. Everyone knows John Wayne Gacy. There's a couple of names that sort of rise to the top when you think of, you know, a serial killer. But then there's folks like the McCrary Taylors, and they're doing stuff just as heinous and just as crazy, and nobody remembers them. And it's sort of interesting, the ones that stick with you and then the ones that have sort of been forgotten collect collectively. And then there's Professor Harold Schechter, an expert on serial murder and Professor Emeritus at Queens College in New York City, the author of 20 books on serial killing. He sides with Dr. Schlesinger. You know, the term serial killer, which I think I was have been the first one to trace its origin, uh, first appears in uh, Germany in, in the 1930s, and it was uh, applied to um, this uh, really monstrous killer named Peter Curtin, who was known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. You know, he was an extreme sexual sadist. Uh, who derived his pleasure from uh, 
torturing and mutilating and drinking the blood of his victims. You know, back then, the common term for those people, the term that they were using for the most part, uh, was lust murder. I mean, usually they would have an orgasm while they were doing it. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah, the McCrary's. You know, the term now is more widely applied. You know, the people who commit a series of murders uh, over a period of time, you know, with a certain hiatus between the killings. You know, but classically, yeah, the term applied to and, and was meant to apply to serial sex killers. I agree with Dr. Schlesinger. I think he's right. Here's Detective Joe Fanciulli with his take. He differs strongly from Dr. Schlesinger. I, I, I sort of struggle with what you first said about talking to this expert who said these guys weren't serial killers. I, I don't I don't understand because if you look at the people you mentioned, you know, Gacy, Ted Bundy, son of Sam, they pick out a certain kind of victim, a certain kind of circumstance, a certain kind of MO a signature to every single crime they commit they're similar they're similar fact transactions and that's exactly what these guys did so i i, I struggle with your guys saying nah these guys weren't serial killers well if they weren't serial killers what the hell were they you know charlie manson ramirez that stuff was going on when Carl and Sherman were doing their thing. Same stuff. Ted Bundy, same stuff. I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not criticizing your, your expert, but I think he's giving a diagnosis based upon, based upon like facts. Fanciulli's colleague Bob Miller, the prosecutor who built the case against the McCrary's when they faced trial in 1973, backs up Fanciulli's claim that the McCrary's were serial killers, taking issue, especially with Dr. Schlesinger's claim that the family did it all for the money. I don't think their primary motive was robbery. If, 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 if it had been robbery, they'd have gone, as Willie Sutton said, where the money was, at the banks, or, or major companies, or places that have a lot of cash. They knew from experience that these convenience stores and donut shops wouldn't have much more than $100 in the cash register on a good night. So my view of, of their motive has, I, I've, I've always thought that the money was secondary and that there was something else that caused them to do what they did, uh, including possible sexual gratification uh, or possibly just the thrill of killing people. Obviously, there's a lot of thoughtful back and forth on this issue, but in the grand scheme, maybe nailing down a specific taxonomy for these crimes isn't particularly useful. The victims are no less dead, the crimes no less heinous. It's useful for investigators and behavioral scientists, but for the rest of us, the more important focal point might be the harrowing and sad rupture left by these awful crimes and their deeply antisocial perpetrators. I think the fact that the McCrary's committed the kinds of crimes they did during their spree this says less about what category of murder they fall into 
then, you know, just, <laughs> I'm not sure how to say this, but, you know, their level of intelligence and so on, you know, I, I you know, I, I just think sort of distorted, small-time, you know, criminals um, who, you know, lacked any imagination or anything else. I mean, you know, these were not people who, you know, were going to plot out some major bank robbery. Um, you know, they just saw these, again, these were sort of targets of opportunity, I guess, um, you know, to, to use criminological jargon. Kevin Greenlee of the Murder Sheet podcast, an attorney, has an interesting anecdote to share on all of this. I worked with a, a judge in a relatively small town in southern Indiana, and there was a man in that town who inherited from his father about a half dozen thoroughbred racing horses that were valued between twenty and thirty thousand dollars apiece. And after this man inherited these horses, he stopped feeding them, and the horses slowly starved to death. And it's not that expensive to feed horses, especially horses. They're worth so much money, it'd be worth the investment. He very easily could have sold the horses to other people, made a nice uh, amount of money on them, but he chose just to let them die from his own negligence. And so I approached the judge and said, does this man have any kind of a reason for this? And the judge basically just laughed in my face and said, reasons don't matter. Uh, he said, is there a reason good enough to explain this? And, and there wasn't. In the end, sometimes these transgressions are just senseless beyond all reason. And we're just twisting in the wind. By now, you probably have a good handle on the McCrary's, their M.O. and their murderous journey. And maybe you've wondered, has any other family killed in this way? In a brutal and repetitive fashion, snuffing out young lives and destroying families in their wake. Well, there's one family who bears some eerie similarities to the McCrary Taylors. They're known as the Bloody Benders, and they began their murderous spree in 1871, exactly 100 years before Carl and Sherman abducted Sherry Martin from a Salt Lake City donut shop and killed her in the desert. Starting in our last episode, we began to tell the tale of the Benders, who ran a little inn and general store in Labette, Kansas. They robbed and killed at least 12 travelers who came through their establishment with hammer blows to the skull. When we left off, we learned about how the Bender clan used the alluring Kate Bender as a snare to draw men into their deadly trap. Now we tell part two of the story. Our storytellers are novelist and historian Michael Frizzell and investigative writer and producer Niall Capello. Over 20 people were said to have disappeared after visiting the Benders in their infamous inn. But before I get to all that, I do want to talk a little bit about John Bender Jr. Jr. was a little frightening um, in a lot of ways. They, they, they found him in the area to be, well, they, they called him simple. He laughed a lot. Though he seemed to be handsome, that giggling, this constant giggling that he uh, did unnerved people. And they, they found him to be uh, maybe someone you didn't want to hang around with too much. 
he was a little bit too forward with women, a little bit too forward even with his own sister. And there just seemed to be an oddness about him that people tended to avoid him as much as they could. Pa, of course, was such a threatening force because he was so quiet that people always avoided him and Ma was rarely seen. Now, John Jr.'s job at the inn was to um, work with the general stores and bringing goods in, um, work the land, um, bringing the food in that they grew for the travelers, these sorts of things. So when Kate, being the proprietor of the inn itself, usually was the only one that most of the travels, travelers met. So how it worked, young man would stop. He would ask to stay. They had vacancy. And then Kate, as she cooked him dinner, would ask lots of questions. Questions like, where are you traveling to? Where are you from? What's your plans? What she was finding that many of these young men had a lot of money in their pockets, very little contact with the outside world, and there was a long journey from the East Coast to the West Coast. When she was satisfied, she would set that young man down at the table, his back to the tarp, and begin to serve him meals, distracting him as much as possible. Now the story goes, it was either Pa Bender or John Jr. would take a large hammer. Now they had three or four different styles of hammer that they used, but they would strike the young man in the back of the head through the tarp so hard that it would knock him out or kill him. Then they would lift the tarp, open up a trap door, dump the body down into the cellar to ensure that the traveler was dead. And then under the cover of darkness, Kate or John Jr. would go into the cellar, rob the body, take the horses, saddle and the pack and these sorts of things, fence it at the local general store, and then take the body and under cover of darkness, bury it in the garden where they were growing the vegetables for their travelers. That's the way the story goes of the Bender family and their infamous kills and how that all started. Bender Inn was not the safe haven it was pretending to be, and the Benders were not really these gracious hosts just trying to, you know, help people out and make a little bit of a living. And around 1873, uh, the Bender Inn really became the focus of this local inquisition because there had been a series of mysterious disappearance and death going on. Um, it started around May of 1871. Uh, there was a man who was found in Drum Creek, uh, southeast of the Bender property in what would later become Montgomery County. He was found with his skull crushed in and his throat slashed and his murder was never solved. So in February of 1872, they then found two additional men who had the same unique injuries. So they also had their skulls crushed and their throats slashed. So with three victims who appeared to have been murdered, you know, no leads on, on who had murdered any of these men, and travelers started to disappear off of the Osage Trail around the same time, people started to think that it could be connected. So there were these reports of these murders, as well as the reports of these people who were going along the Osage Trail and never making it to their destinations. So travelers were beginning to spread throughout the region that travelers should avoid the route, you know, and be extra um, careful and on high alert if they were taking it. At the same time, there were these vigilante groups around the area that, you know, tried to find someone to hold accountable, 
often arresting people, uh, roughing them up. But, you know, these, these men ended up always being innocent. And there were really no solid leads on who was committing these crimes in the area. Um, the case that ended up really breaking this wide open was the disappearance of a man named George Newton Longcore. It was the disappearance of George Newton Longcore that really set in motion the series of events that would eventually expose what was going on on the Osage Trail with these people going missing and turning up murder. So after his wife died, Longcore took his 18-month-old daughter, Marianne. They left Independence, Kansas and headed for Iowa. Before Longcore left, he actually bought his horse and wagon from his neighbor. And so when his horse and wagon turned up abandoned near Fort Scott, Kansas, this man, Dr. William Henry York, was alerted that the horse and buggy had been found. Worried, Dr. William Henry York set out looking for Longcore and, and his young daughter, Marianne, around the spring of 1873. And he basically followed the same path that they had taken and questioned different homesteaders along the Osage Trail as he made his way towards Fort Scott, where the horse and buggy had been found. Um, there, he found not only the wagon and the horses, but also clothes that appeared to have belonged to Longcore and his daughter. Dr. York, you know, found all this stuff, got the horse, got the wagon, but, you know, didn't see long for any sign of Marianne. So he made a fatal decision to, you know, head back to Independence, Kansas. And at that time, Dr. York stopped at Bender Inn and he never returned. What the vendors didn't really realize is that this last victim uh, came from a really prominent family and was going to cause some problems for them. The third and final chapter of the Bender story continues in the next episode. February 19th, 1972, a Saturday night in Portland, Oregon. Having crisscrossed the country and worn the interstates to nothing, the McCrary Taylor Caravan has made its way to the Pacific Northwest. A very unfamiliar, hippy-dippy territory, but Carl and Sherman are about to make their mark on it. Down by the river, where the Willamette flows into the Columbia, Low clouds hang across the sky. The I-405 is slick with rain. They're driving a 1972 Ford Rambler, all they could procure with their maxed-out credit cards and Sherman pounding whiskey, complains that they're not in their usual four-door Chevy. At this point, the men are pulling three armed robberies a week. Carl complains that it's like feeding a pack of wolves. As soon as they have fresh meat, the family annihilates it, needing more and more cash. The family was burning through $500 a day, over $3,000 in today's dollars. Here's Detective Fenchuli. We got all these mouths to feed. And if you think about it, even in 1970, think about, think about two carloads of people pulling at least one bobtail trailer full of shit, driving around the country, living in motels, albeit crappy motels, but yet motels, eating out, quote-unquote, all their meals. They're, they're not cooking meals. They're, they're living in motel rooms. Even in 1970s dollars, that was, that was an expensive lifestyle. You got anywhere between six, seven, eight people traveling around together. Gas, motel rooms, food. 
So they'd bust out of town with bad checks or, you know, petty robberies, and then they'd have to move on to the next place. This got too hot. As they drive down South Terwilger Boulevard around 9 p.m., all the stores are shut except one, the get-and-go convenience store, where a 26-year-old hippie chick named Cynthia Glass was flying solo, and Carl and Sherman's craven desperation strikes again. Here's Carl. Cynthia Glass. Well, we went to a little grocery store. That's a little bigger than a 7-Eleven. I don't go in there with the intention of robbing the place. We had been out surveying some stores, supermarkets. By this time, we had had a succession of them in Omaha, Dallas, through Denver, and then Portland. The store itself sits kind of out of the way. Nothing around is open. I stopped. I went in to get some cigarettes. And the thought struck me when I walked through the door, she was in there by herself. And I thought, oh, goddamn. It's going to be a repeat. And I looked around, and there comes Sherman through the door. And I just looked around, and I pulled out my gun. And uh, she looked and started laughing. I told her, this ain't no toy, girl. And she looked a hell of a lot younger than she was. I think she was about 25 years old. And at that time, there ain't no way she looked over 25. Well, she was a hippier than the day is long. And she's laughing like hell. Now, I told her, now, this ain't no toy. She said, I know it's not a toy. She said, you know, she said, when you drove up, she said, I thought in my mind you were going to rob me. To be continued. After their killings, Carl remarked that he and Sherman would never talk about them. They would simply drive away and try to ignore what they had done as they headed back to town. Was it shame, compunction? What was going through their bodies? and minds will never know. Next week, the Cynthia Glass abduction doesn't go as exactly as planned. She put her hand in her purse. She comes up with a couple of joints. She's driving along and she's getting higher than a Georgia pine because she was so non-concerned about the whole damn thing. And a multi-state investigation begins to tighten around the family. Would Gillespie gave gave us that traveling criminals bulletin and i just whacked myself in the head i'm like i don't believe this i knew these people i was chasing these people and with the police pressure reaching a feverish pitch carl attempts an epic robbery that spirals out of control it's all on episode five of families who kill the donut shop murders Families Who Kill the Donut Shop Murders is a production of Trooper Entertainment and Wondery. It is executive produced by Dave Kaplan, Randy Tatt, and Alan Weeder. Written by Alan Weeder. Co-executive produced, narrated, and edited by James Carroll. Supervising producer is Michael Wiley. Consulting producer is Detective Joe Finchuli. Ethan Darbone is the voice of Carl Taylor. Special thanks to Mark Turner and A3 Artists Agency. Mixed and mastered by Wildwoods Picture and Sound. Theme song and scoring is by Nick O'Leary and Hush Empire. Additional music is from the Jingle Punks Library. Additional production by Lily Williner. Cover art by Teenage Stepdad. If you have questions or information about the McCrary case, feel free to email us at donutshopmurders at gmail.com. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast you enjoy. 
Thank you for your support. 